Welcome to Immigration Uncovered, the DocketWise video podcast where we dive deep into the dynamic world of immigration law, shedding light on the latest developments, cutting-edge practice management strategies, and the transformative impact of legal technology. I'm thrilled to be your host on this exciting journey as we empower immigration practitioners with invaluable insights and explore the intricate intersection of law and society. This is episode 11, and our guest today is attorney Joseph Gentili. Uh, Mr. Gentili uh, practices in New York State, and he is a founding member of Seraf and Gentili, the law firm. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please introduce yourself. Tell us, tell our listeners about your background and your journey to becoming a partner at your current firm. Sure. Um, th- thanks for having me on, James. I really appreciate it. Um, and you, you can call me Joe. Pretty much everybody calls me Joe. So we started our firm in 2004. So we've been kicking around for a while. I, When I was in law school, what I was really focused on doing was securities class actions. And I was pretty much obsessed with, with getting into that area. And so the, the first firm that I went to out of law school was a securities class action firm. And that's where I met my partner, Ronan Saraf, who we're still partners to today. We were both associates there at the time. And um, I got it in my head about, uh, I guess it was about seven or eight months uh, into practicing law that I'm better off doing this at my own, at my own firm, rather than continuing at the firm I was at. And so I convinced my partner, who was for four or five years uh, ahead of me uh, of the same thing. And we started Saraf Chantilly. And in the beginning, our primary focus was securities class action cases and also ERISA class action cases. ERISA, if for, for people that don't know, it basically is the law that deals with employee benefits. So at that time, the cases that we were getting into had to do mostly with 401k plans. So stock investments within 401k K plans at one south. So that's how we started in 2004. Oh, excellent. So you, you're coming at this, you came at this as a federal litigator. And then at a certain point, um, you know, it occurred to you that your skill set in court would uh, could be used in immigration cases. How, how did that evolve and how did you first get involved in immigration litigation? Immigration is something broadly that has has always been kind of in the back of my mind going going way back is something I wanted to get involved with legally. And I didn't for a long time because I didn't really see a role for myself. So early in my career, when I really didn't understand immigration all that all that well, I basically said to myself, well, this is all very interesting to me. I'd like to help people in this area, but I don't speak Spanish. So what you know what what good am I going to be in this area? And so then I kind of put it out of mind for a while. But it's something that stuck with me over the years. And I started looking at it again seriously during the Trump administration. Because I had noticed at that time that litigation was starting to play a more prominent role in immigration practice. And even after I kind of got the idea, okay, you don't necessarily have to speak Spanish to be an immigration lawyer. I was of the sense of what what do I really had to have to add here that's not already in the field? You know, I really don't have any competitive advantage here for a petitions based practice. But once litigation became more prominent under Trump or under the the Trump administration, 
that's when I saw something that I thought potentially I could contribute because most people in the immigration space, if they're going to do litigation, they come to it initially as a petitions attorney and then kind of get into litigation. And I came in from the reverse. So I like to think that um, at least for the federal litigation portion of it, particularly the procedure and just generally the unwritten parts of, of how it operates, we're coming to it with a pretty pretty deep, uh, deep well of experience. I, I always find it very interesting to talk to people who came to immigration having already developed, you know, professional competencies in other areas and then found a reason or a way to apply, you know, those talents in the immigration space. Um, so uh, you mentioned that you were interested in it uh, already sort of in the background. Well, I'm, I'm just curious, what was it that interested you about immigration? But you, you know, you said you didn't see a role for yourself. But what was your original interest? It's it's not so much my my family. I mean, I'm my family's been in the U.S. at this point for close to 100 years. Like I was fortunate enough that I grew up with the immigration, uh, the, the generation that came over to the U.S. In my case, from Italy. My wife is an immigrant, but I think really what kind of kept me in it is that um, I'm I'm Catholic, and part of the Catholic social teaching, immigration plays a very big a big role in that. Um, it's a very, very large focus of the church. So I think over the years, I've probably been somewhat brainwashed by the church that this is a good area to be into. And this is work I should be using my skills and my talents to try to, to try to further. So I think that that's played a significant role for me. It's keeping it on my radar. Got it. Understood. Well, um, could you briefly uh, tell us about the types of immigration cases that your firm currently handles through litigation, and why are these uh, different areas so important? I would break it down largely into three categories. So we do a lot of work addressing uh, immigration delays, do a lot of work addressing immigration denials, and then we do some, let's say, immigration-adjacent work around the EB-5 program. So for those that aren't familiar with it, it's an investor visa program where depending on the time that you did it and where you're investing, investing between half a million dollars and $1.8 million, if you created a certain amount of jobs, then it's a, a road to a green card. And that's an area where you have people investing large amounts of money that aren't necessarily very familiar with the investment climate and the laws in the United States. And you have a group of people in the real estate industry primarily, but also other industries that are very eager to get their hands on these large sums of money. And it it, it results sometimes in frauds or let's say people losing money when they were led to believe the investment was something other than it was. And that's an area that we got involved in. And, you know, to be honest, it, it fits very well into our background and experience because it really just, it's right at that intersection of mm -hmm. securities law and corporate law litigation and immigration. So, you know, I, by, by kind of happenstance, we're just, we're just very well suited to work on that. Well, let's dive into the first of those topics, which is immigration delay litigation. And you actually co-authored a book with the title Resolving Immigration Delays with Litigation. And you wrote this together with your law partner, Ronan Saraf. Could you share with us the most common reasons for immigration delays that you've encountered? The reasons are 
largely mysterious in a lot of ways for a particular person's case. But overall, systemically, I think what we're seeing is um, USCIS and the consulates just are not adequately staffed to handle the amount of work that they have. And that's resulting in delays throughout the system. There are other sources of delays that aren't necessarily systemic, such as I still think that there's heightened background checks for people of certain backgrounds, particularly if they're from Muslim-majority countries, for instance. Sometimes there's delays that are specific to a consulate, but I think the largest contributing factor that, that impacts most people is just the, just just the overwhelming amount of work to do relative to the amount of resources that the government has put towards doing. Uh, understood. Well, I mean, when someone's facing a delay in their immigration case, I mean, obviously, uh, there are some steps that you have to go through before you can jump right into federal court. So let's talk about that. I mean, how, how you know, what do you need to do before you actually can go to court on a delay? I don't, I don't think that there's many steps that you absolutely have to do. I think there are just steps that I would call best practices. And if you can do them, it's better you do than you don't. So some, some examples of that would be you could request to uh, expedite your case. You could contact the USC ombudsman. You could write to your local congressperson to ask for help. You could write to your local senator to ask for help. Um, so in my experience, these tactics, they, they don't work in and of themselves all that frequently, but they are useful in creating a trail to eventually show a judge that you're doing everything you can to try to help yourself, and it's just not working. So, judge, we need your help. I mean, one of the, the forms of relief that you might be seeking in federal court would be a writ of mandamus. Uh, so can we explain the process of uh, going to court to seek a, a, a writ of mandamus and why you would want to do that? Yeah. So when when you're filing a case for a delay, usually you're having um, two things that you're suing under. And for delay cases, they're, they're largely overlapping with each other. And it's you're going to have a writ of mandamus and you're going to have uh, account under the Administrative Procedures Act. And basically what you're saying, you're asking the judge to compel um, a government worker or government agent to, to take an action that they owe you a duty to do. So they don't owe you an approval. Um, so with a mandamus case, we're not arguing over approval or denial. We're just arguing over we're entitled to an action or a decision period. So whether that be an interview or it can be a decision. The way that works is you're you're filing a lawsuit in in federal court. Um, you're if this is something that you're going to want to do, you're probably best suit best um, helping yourself by hiring an attorney to help you with it. Preferably one that's done a written mandamus before. And you're going to have them vet the case. They're going to help you determine whether the delay that you have is reasonable or unreasonable. Um, so if you filed an adjustment of status a month ago and you just really don't feel like waiting, you know, you can't file a mandamus lawsuit and expect a good result if that's the case. So you need somebody to walk through, I guess, different ways to look at the case and see whether the delay is, is reasonable or not. If it's unreasonable... You're going to have the attorney write a complaint. 
they're going to file it in federal court. They are going to work with you to select the proper jurisdiction, file it in, they're going to serve the complaint, and then you get the U.S. Attorney's Office involved, and you're hoping for some action at that point once the U.S. Attorney's Office is uh, Now, who are you? Who's your opposing party? I mean, who are you serving when you go to federal court? Well, you're you're suing the agencies that are involved. You're suing the U.S. government. Um, so it could be USCIS, it could be the Department of State, it could be the particular consulate. The cases are almost always going to be defended by, well, they're always going to be defended by the U.S. Attorney's Office. The U.S. Attorney's Office is either going to have one of their, you know, staff attorneys defending the case, just one of their normal AUSAs, or for cases that are more complex or they deem to be more weighty, they may bring in uh, an attorney from OIL, the Office of uh, Immigration Litigation for the Department of Justice. And that's kind of their, you know, the, those those are their most experienced. And when you file your complaint, what sort of record are you, you know, going to introduce to the court? I mean, what, what is your, I mean, what sort of evidence are you producing? For a delay case, I, I guess you're, you're introducing probably three categories of evidence. So number one, you, you want to show how long the delay is. We have filing receipts. We filed, you know, our uh, petition on this date. We had an interview on that date. We're still waiting for, uh, for a decision. You're going to want to show any steps that you took to try to remediate this on your own. Like we discussed, you, you contacted your local congressperson. It, it didn't help. And you're going to want to describe the harm or the hardship that the delay is is causing you to the extent that there is one. So if you have, let's say it's a, the case is related to a delay on an EAD, if you're going to lose your job over this delay or you're not able to take a job, this, this is something you're going to want to mention as well. So those are really, I think, the three main categories you're going to hit with delay case. And then are we looking at having, how many hearings are we typically having in a, in, a manda, in a mandamus action? If all goes well, none. This is kind of the the home run situation, what you're hoping for. What you're hoping for is that you file the case, you serve the case. Once you serve the case, the government gets 60 days to respond to the lawsuit. Now, what you've done by serving this lawsuit is prior to you filing the case, the government really had no cost. Um, to continue to delay your case, to just have it sit somewhere on the bottom of a pile. Now, by filing the lawsuit, you're imposing a cost on them for waiting. If they decide to continue to have your case on the bottom of the pile, now, when that 60 days is up, an assistant U.S. attorney is going to have to show up and fight the case, move to dismiss it. They're going to have to put some time into it. So the idea is, is that you're going to hope that they're going to take the position of, well, you know, we do have to decide this case eventually. It's going to take somebody at USAIS a half hour of their time to decide this case, or we're going to have this AUSA spend hours defending this, so let's just decide it and get it done with. And that is what they do the majority of the time. What sort of problems could you conceivably run into for the percentage of time when you, you don't hit a home run? I mean, what are some of the things that can, you know, be adverse in a case like this? Or are you asking, like, what, what if, let's assume they don't um, settle the case and decide what, what happens? Yeah, they don't settle within 60 days. That's right. Usually the next step is they're going to file a motion to dismiss. 
-hmm. they're going to file something in court that says that even assuming everything you say is true, judge, this, this case can't succeed, so you need to dismiss it. That is usually the next step. We would oppose that motion to dismiss. And frequently, I mean, if you win on that stage, cases typically settle at that point. Hypothetically, there, there could be discovery, um, but that's very rare. And there could be summary judgment, which is basically a mini trial from one of these cases, but also very rare. One of the nice things about mandamus lawsuits is that the stakes are relatively low a lot of times, mm -hmm. meaning that if the mandamus case is not successful, there's, there's exceptions to this, but by and large, if the mandamus case is not successful, you simply go back to waiting. And it's as if you haven't, I mean, for immigration purposes, it's as if you haven't filed the case. So when we're going through the risk analysis for one of these with client, a lot of times it really revolves around how important is the money to them, because that's the biggest thing that they stand to lose. If they fight the case and it doesn't work, they're going to be out a certain amount of money. And these type of actions can be brought against USCIS, against the consulates or embassies. Uh, how about against... Do you, I mean, DOL, there would be no reason why you wouldn't be able, for example, suppose you had a PERM application pending with the Labor Department and they've never made a decision on it uh, long after the stated processing time. I mean, there's nothing stopping you from going and filing a mandamus action on or against that agency. Or The one area where it gets a little dicey as to whether you could do anything with a mandamus lawsuit is anything touching on immigration court and removal proceedings. Why is that dicey? Well, because the the issue of whether you have standing to bring something in district court at that point becomes questionable. So that's that's pretty much why a lot of what goes on in removal proceedings or in immigration court, you can't do anything in federal district court with it. it has to go to circuit court of appeals. So that's an area where jurisdiction gets a little tricky. What about if you are in immigration court with proceedings pending, but you're waiting on a delayed, let's say, I-130 or I-140, some petition that you filed that's delayed? So you're saying that just the virtue of the fact that the respondent is in removal proceedings could result in, in the district court ruling that it doesn't have jurisdiction to hear a mandamus action during the time that they're in a real war? So I could tell you like a scenario that we've worked on that's kind of similar where you have somebody that's in removal proceedings and they get married while they're in removal proceedings and there's an I-130 pending uh, with USCIS that's related to that. We've filed and been successful in, in those scenarios. The government hasn't, I mean, maybe they could, but they haven't argued um, that you don't have jurisdiction to do. I think probably the the scenario that comes up where, you know, I don't think there really is anything we can do is let's say you have an appeal pending in front of the BIA and the appeal's been pending a long time. I don't know really if there's much we can do in that scenario. I think that that's that's on shape. So if you're if you get if you have a I one thirty denial, let's say, and you would take your appeal to the BIA uh, and then you, the BIA, let's say the BIA is sitting on it for a very long period of time, you're saying probably cannot succeed going to federal court seeking a mandamus against the BIA? Yeah, I don't think so. I think that's pretty shady. I mean, I'd have to research it more thoroughly, but just as a general principle, that's that's got a lot of... Uh... 
So what are the common uh, types of immigration petitions and applications that you are most often going to court for the writ of mandamus? They seem to come in waves. You know, we get a lot of EAD issues, and I, I think that's because having an EAD is just so critical that even having relatively short delays can really have a negative impact on somebody's life. Your career could get thrown off course pretty easily. Sometimes, depending on how desperately somebody needs to travel, advanced parole issues too, AP issues come up done a lot with waiting for asylum interviews because there's just such a tremendous group of people that are waiting for three, four, five, six, seven years for, for an asylum interview that under the current regime just may never come. Now, let me just ask a question before on the asylum interview. What That is one which, you know, traditionally, even in the best of times, can take a long time to to get interviewed. And my understanding is recently it's it's been really set out very far. So how... In, in our current climate, uh, let's say this this year, for example, how long would you advise people that they would have to wait uh, for their asylum interview before they should start considering a mandamus? I'd say probably three years. There's no... Wow. Okay. There's, there's no hard and fast rule with it, but three years seems to be kind of a rule of thumb that's being, it's being set out there. Um it's the, the the reason why there's these people are, are in, stuck in such tremendous delays is because the government instituted this LIFO method, last in first out, of how to how to give asylum interviews. So if you filed an asylum case today, you have a priority to get an interview sooner than somebody that filed five years ago. So the way that shakes so out, the rationale for that. The rationale is. The government doesn't want people to come and ask for asylum and think that they could just stay for six years waiting for an interview. So if you're applying for asylum today, they want to prioritize those and get those adjudicated as, I guess, a deterrent to having people bank on there being long delays and getting them. So... Uh, you know, regardless of whether that's a, a wise strategy or policy or not, the effect of it is is that the longer that you're waiting for an interview, the less likely you are to get it. So a person that's at that really long stage of waiting, at least theoretically, as long as there's a lot of people applying for asylum, which doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon, they may never get an interview without a mandamus. So... There's been a lot of demand for those cases. And then there's just a, a whole bunch of people that, for whatever reason, at a consulate, they end up in administrative processing. The The reason may not be clear, and the duration for which they're in administrative processing could be two weeks or it could be six months. It's just very hard to tell. So we get folks with that um, pretty frequently. And let's, let, let me ask the same question in regard to that, because I've seen and I've heard of people having really, un really long, unreasonable delays at the consulates and embassies and feeling utterly helpless because it can, in fact, even be hard to to contact uh, any of the officials at the consulates or embassy and get yeah. any sort of status update. Um, how long would you advise people if they have, let's say, um, you know, a DS-260 pending at one of the embassies? Uh, for a wait, how long should they wait if they're in administrative review before going for a mandamus? I don't really have a rule of thumb with that. I 
I tend to evaluate those a lot of times based off the hardship that the delay is causing. So for instance, if uh, you're in an H-1B, you traveled, you're, you know, you're going to get a stamp. If you're out for two months, I'd, I'd say file a case. If you're in danger of losing your job because of it, then file it. So I don't have like a hard and fast rule with it, but I'm pretty aggressive, I think, uh, in terms of the time frames that I'd look at for filing on an administrative process. Before we move on to talking about uh, immigration denial challenges, do you want to share any highlights or any really notable cases where, you know, you saw the mandamus really achieve a, a good result for someone in a particular type of case? I, I guess there's two broad categories of cases with that that I, I have found to be particularly rewarding. You know, let's let's just say mom or dad is in the U.S., spouses overseas um, with child, and they are separated for a very long time. And, uh, you know, they're waiting a year and a half, whatever it is, to come. If we're able to short shortcut that wait using an asylum case and those families can get reunited, that's that's great. Um, I, I love those cases. You know, especially with younger children, you miss a year in a younger child's life. It's it's a big deal. It's really painful for the parents when that's the case. Um, there's also the other genre of cases, I guess, where somebody is on the cusp of losing their job. And we're able to step in and not have that happen. And there's a really short time period with which we have to work with to get that done. Um, so those are really rewarding. You know, that just along those lines with the EAD cases, those, to, in, in my experience, and this is anecdotal, those tend to settle really fast, uh, much faster than other types, because the, the total amount of touch time it takes for the government to adjudicate an EAD is it's, it's something like, I forgot the exact number, it's like 12 minutes or 15 minutes. It's a very, very short amount of work that they have to do. So when you file those lawsuits, and you're giving the government the option of spending 10 hours to do a motion to dismiss or 12 minutes to adjudicate the case. A lot of times they adjudicate those cases really quickly. Those are rewarding, you know, from, from the client's perspective. Sometimes it looks like you're pulled off. Of this is really useful information. Uh, and I'm sure that as we continue to see, you know, large numbers of people, um, you know, uh, different surges, if you, if you will, um, at the border and large numbers of people applying for asylum, this uh, sort of technique uh, is, is going to become you know more important than ever. I mean, this is certainly really, really timely to be thinking about mandamus. So let's talk about immigration uh, denial challenges. So it's obviously very disheartening for clients when their petition is denied by uh, USCIS or the other agencies. Um, what are some of the uh, reasons for denials that you've encountered where you've uh, challenged the decision in court? I mean, it, 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 it ranges kind of from, let's say we've looked at close calls, we looked at errors that were so egregious that the government was citing somebody else's case um, in, in making the decision. We've looked at cases where just all the evidence that, submit, that was submitted just wasn't consider the government just kind of focused on, you know, certain aspects of um, what was submitted and what wasn't. I, I think they generally fall into two categories. So a lot of times 
if we're looking at denials that originate out of a consulate or an issue with kind of coming in with the CBP coming in through an airport, let's say, you, you get people making really fast decisions and it looks to me sometimes like they're just having a bad day and they're just being a more harsh than they have to be or in some cases really can be. And then on the USCIS side, um, I think either you see a version of incompetence related to what we discussed earlier, not necessarily that the people there don't know what they're doing, but they're overwhelmed in terms of how much work they have to do and how much time they have to do it. So there's just, you know, egregious mistakes that can only be chalked up to, they, they're just going too fast. Or they're trying to implement something on a policy level that's, let's say, on the border of whether they can or can't do it, and maybe they overstep. So, so to sum up, you can have sort of blatant on your face, on its face, sort of errors by the agency, just flat out mistakes on their face. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, errors in weighting the evidence uh, and, and how much importance to attach to the evidence or failure to consider the evidence. And then errors in either interpretation of the law or application of the law to the facts. Do I have that right? Yeah, and in some cases, I think just overstepping their discretion. You know, um, particularly you'll see this, I think, more at the consulate level, and sometimes with CBP because they they are subject to less stringent review. Well, what would be an example of a blatant abuse of discretion at the consulate or embassy? I had one case that just was infuriating, where we had um, a seven-year-old that was denied the ability to come to the United States on grounds of supporting terrorism. I thought that was, uh, you know, just, just completely absurd and just overset any discretion about, you know, can a person support terrorism or not? I don't think a seven-year-old. Okay. Now, all right. A good example. Um, so let's talk about the mechanics here. Practically speaking, how does one go about challenging an immigration a denial um, in federal court, what do you do? What do you file, and so forth? So I'll I'll break this down into three categories, I guess. So the first category of cases are the majority of USCIS originated denials. So for the majority of USCIS originated denials the tool that you're going to have to combat the denial is, is again, the Administrative Procedures Act. And you have to show that the denial is not just wrong, but that it's it's arbitrary and capricious. It's a pretty high bar for us to get over. And usually the first decision that somebody has to make is, are they going to go to, to the intermediary step of going to the AAO before they file, or are they going to go straight to federal court? Usually, you have the option of uh, deciding what you want to do. You don't have to go to the AAO. In most instances, you can just go straight to federal court. I typically advise people to skip the AAO step. In my experience and just kind of the shared wisdom of other immigration practitioners is that the AAO will frequently, a vast majority of the time, they're going to confirm a denial. Um, it's going to chew up some clock. It's going to take some time. And you're also giving 
the government the opportunity to deny your case for a different reason or a more fulsome explanation of the original reason. And I think if you have the government caught in a mistake, they did something sloppy, fight them on that mistake. Don't give them a chance to correct it. The largest exception I would say that you should go to the AAO first or at least consider it is that denial cases fought under the APA are fought on what's called the administrative record. The administrative record is all a judge can consider when they're when they're doing these cases. So you can't bring in any, any new evidence at that point. Whatever is the, the history of the case is all a judge has to work. So if you have something meaningful that you think you can bolster your case with that was left out, the AAO is your opportunity to put that into the record before going to federal court. So that would be the, that would be the the, the one instance. Um, then naturalization denials have their own path. So for naturalization denials, you do have to take that intermediary step. You have to file an N336, see how that goes, and then assuming you get a denial there, that, then you can go to federal court. The naturalization cases have a much more favorable standard that they're decided on for the immigrant. So naturalization cases are decided de novo which means that the judge is going to look at the evidence fresh. They don't have to basically give any deference to what USCIS has decided on your case. So you don't have that arbitrary, capricious standard to get over. You get a de novo look at the case and you can't introduce new evidence. It's more like a normal litigation than, a, than an APA. Let, let me ask a question. So, so this deference, so the arbitrary and capricious standard, like for example, the I-140, uh, you get the I-140 denied and you decide whether or not to go to the AAO. Let's say you decide to skip the AAO, you're going to go to federal court, or even if you do go to the AAO, federal court, they have to apply Chevron deference, right? So there's, is that correct? And then there's a, they have to, you have to show that the agency decision was arbitrary and capricious? You have to show that it is arbitrary and capricious. Chevron standard may be going away soon. Uh, there's a Supreme Court case where that's, that's on the, docket and the expectation is it is going to go away. So it's a separate topic, but it's interesting. That's, I think, has the potential to change a lot in immigration litigation um, in unforeseen ways. But yeah, you, you're, you're going with that arbitrary and capricious standard. So you can't just show that it was a close call and it bounced the other way. You have to show that they made just, they made a, a flat out error. They didn't consider all the evidence that was put in front of them. Um, or they have their own internal guidelines about how to decide, you know, these particular cases, and they they didn't follow their own guidelines. It's it's a it's it's a pretty strict standard uh, against immigrant. But you know, they the government does make a lot of mistakes. So you now these cases they do frequently resolve pretty favorably for the immigrant. Right. So that might be something that practitioners want to really look at. I mean, not to be daunted by just the words arbitrary and capricious, because as a matter of fact, uh, there can be, I don't want to call them small errors, but there can be errors that are, you know, maybe being committed routinely, but are nevertheless result in an arbitrary ruling. Um, probably the biggest, and this is related, but the, the biggest, I think, hole that we have in litigation is that 485 denials are, are very difficult to to contest. Uh, there was a Supreme Court decision 
um, Patel versus the United States. I think it's a year, two years old. I forgot exactly. But that makes uh, adjustment of status, trying to reverse an adjustment of status denial, extremely difficult. The 485 denials are very difficult to contest. And then it's just a question of how far down are, is the case law going to flow on? So if you have a standalone 130 denial, I think you can probably contest it. The closer it gets to being bundled with the 485, I think the harder it is. And the 485 denial being difficult to contest in court, I mean, is that uh, purely an issue of the statute sort of not giving jurisdiction to the court? Or is it because the standard that USCIS uses when denying it is discretionary and it's just hard to show that they abuse their discretion? The former. But the latter creates a difficult argument for other types of cases. So like if you have a national interest waiver, for instance, where you get a denial, the amount of discretion that the government has in deciding something like Okay, so you're drafting up your complaint. Let's say, let's go back to our mechanics. So you're drafting up your complaint and you're you're filing that. You're, you're going through the electronic filing system of the federal district court. You're filing that. You're serving the agency. And then what's going to happen next? Well, once, once you have service, the government, again, gets 60 days to respond to the lawsuit. And within that 60 days, what myself and my partner are going to be doing is we're reaching out to the U.S. Attorney's Office where we filed it. If we know somebody there already that handles immigration cases, great. If not, uh, we'll try to find somebody to reach out to. And we're just trying to see which attorney is assigned to the case. And we want to just let them know that, hey, we're here. Um, if you need anything, let us know. And we're going to be checking in with them periodically during that 60 days just to try to have them start the process of checking in with the agency and see if there's anything um, that can be done. That's largely what we're doing in that 60-day window, but you know the, the ball is in the government's court at that point, really, as to what to do or not to do. And uh, so uh, will you then have, are you going to go through a discovery process? You're going to they're going to be deciding these on the administrative record. So there's not really, you said you can't introduce anything new. So it doesn't sound like there's really any discovery to do. Well, uh, what happens next? So you're going to go this way. There's, there's, there's a backdoor discovery. So one, one, one thing we didn't, we didn't get to is that, um, frequently prior to filing the case, if, if, if we have the time, uh, we're going to file for your request. So the you know under the Freedom of Information Act, let's say um, it's a USCIS denial, we're going to file a FOIA request with USCIS for the for the A file. That usually takes a few weeks to get it, and it's we're not getting discovery, but we are trying to get some more information than maybe we have before filing to try to use that to bolster the case and so. So that's the closest thing that we have to discovery, really, in, in one of those cases that we'll use regularly. Understood. And then is there going to be a briefing schedule, or have you put all your arguments in the complaint? Are you going to a contested hearing, or are you just waiting for a decision? There'll be a schedule. I mean, there's going to be a motion to dismiss. They're going to file it. We're going to have a chance to oppose it. There may be sir replies. There may be oral argument. So it's it's basically a 
stripped down version of a normal litigation. And by stripped down, I mean the discovery portion of it either is not going to exist or it's going to be much, much uh, reduced versus a normal litigation. So it'll proceed as a normal federal litigation at that point. Obviously, no jury trial. There's no trial at the end. Summary judgment's going to be the end of the road. Then if you if, if the ruling is another denial or affirmation of the denial, then you're looking at going up to the circuit court potentially. Um, have you, do you do that very often? And if so, well, first of all, do you do that very often? No, not on an immigration case. You know, there's a really practical reason for that. The The practical reason is, is that's that's a lot of attorney's fees for the average uh, person to be bearing to do one of these cases. So to get to the point where you're at an appeal, some people do it, but you at that point you've you've filed a complaint, you've gone through um, a motion to dismiss, you've gone through summary judgment, um, and then to do an appeal after that, it's it's starting to get pretty expensive at that point. You know, it's just one of the things that's kind of frustrating about this area. Like, I, I come from uh, the contingency world. And in the contingency world, we get to operate in fantasy land a little bit on these issues, especially in class actions. Because, you know, the idea of each of these, we don't have to be so conscious about each step that we're taking, how much time is it going to take, and kind of doing some, you know, benefit-cost analysis with it in that way. Because it's basically our time. That, that we're spending. But um, immigration cases don't go that deep very frequently because the, the cost is just too much for most people to bear. Understood. Do you have any advice for um, either uh, attorneys who are considering, you know, expanding their practice to federal court challenge denials, or if there's any, maybe there's some applicants who might be listening to this podcast, any advice on on people who have gotten a denial decision uh, and are contemplating taking its court of a general nature? Generally, I would say it, for the applicants, I would say you're going to want to get those FOIA requests out pretty quickly because that's a bit of a bottleneck and it's going to help the attorney that you're working with to vet your case that much quicker. For the immigration lawyers who are looking to do denial cases, I, I would say two things uh, related to that. Number one, if you're looking to get into immigration litigation, if, if you haven't done much federal litigation or you're looking to, to start, I wouldn't start with denials. I would start with delays. And delay cases are much simpler. Um, they're easier and the stakes of losing generally are lower. So... Yeah. I would start there. I think that's a better area for somebody that's less experienced to start with. If you were to do a denial case, I think you'd be better suited to co-counsel with a firm or with an attorney that has some experience doing them. They are more complicated. They take more time. They get posed more frequently. So the procedure is going to be a little more important than it will be. Um, in a delay case. So I, I, and you know, the, the consequences of these cases could be greater too. So I, I would suggest co-counsel. Before we move on, I just, I just wanted to bring up one, one area of denials where I think there's been some positive news and developments in the past year or so, and that's for consulate denials. 
So there's a general principle in the law of consular non-reviewability, which basically says that if the consular makes a decision with some very, very, very narrow uh, exceptions, a federal court can't review it. So that's the end of the road. That has been the uh, assumption that most immigration lawyers have been working with for a very long time, and I, I think a lot still do today. But the reality is, is that's starting to change. There was a decision that came out a year ago in the Ninth Circuit, uh, I think it's U.S. versus Munoz, which part of the proposition of that case that stands for, it's very helpful, is that, yes, there's this, this idea of consular non-reviewability. However, if that consulate's decision impacts the constitutional rights of a U.S. citizen, well, then we need to have due process there. And the flavor of cases where we've successfully challenged consular denials, a few of them now, is where we have a U.S. citizen minor child or a U.S. citizen spouse. There's a consular denial, and we're arguing that the U.S. citizen minor child or spouse is being denied of their constitutional right to liberty because they can't live uh, with mom or dad in the U.S. So therefore, that consular denial uh, needs to be uh, looked at, and the family is owed due process. So those have been successful. So to to me, that's that's a very exciting, very exciting development in the law because what was once just really a hopeless situation, now there's some hope with those situations, and uh, we we've been able to 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 reunite some families that even if this was two years ago, it just wouldn't have been possible. Well, it's it's great to hear that at least uh, that part of things is moving in the right direction. Um, so yeah, uh, that's that's encouraging. Let's talk about the EP5 investor visa uh, type of cases. So as you mentioned, Joe, the EB5 uh, investor visa program is uh, an immigration uh, immigrant visa basically based on a petition by an investor. These are people who are citizens of another country who have resources who want to make an investment in a business in the United States. And uh, by going to filing a petition, uh, if their investment meets certain criteria, they can be accorded uh, an immigrant visa number and apply for an immigrant visa or adjust status in the United States. So what are some of the common problems or challenges that EB-5 investors encounter with their investments, which might result in them having to go to court? There's a few. Um, so first, they use mandamus lawsuits just like other petitioners do. Lots of delays in the the EB-5 process. So they have two steps, two petitions. They have the I-526 and the IA-29. Lots of delays in both of them. The 829 cases are very successful uh, in general because unlike most petitions, there's a statutory guidelines as to how long the government has to adjudicate them, which they just completely ignore most of the time. So those are great cases. The 526s are, are much more challenging. Uh, the government, for whatever reason, fights those cases pretty frequently. So they, they have mandamus cases. The next uh, tranche of cases would be in order to um, successfully get your conditions removed to uh, successfully win an A29, you need some, for, for cases that go through a regional center, you need cooperation from the regional center to provide information to satisfy the government 
that the money was invested where it was supposed to be invested, that the jobs were created. And for some, sometimes for, you know, a variety of different reasons, the regional center is not cooperative and doesn't hand over the information on, on time. And so that's an area sometimes where an attorney will need to get involved to threaten to sue. And then if you need be, sue them to compel them to provide the information. And then the, the third area is sometimes people don't get their investments back and they should. The investment money, it was a fraud. It wasn't invested where it was supposed to be invested. Uh, it was lost in some sort of reckless way. Uh, the money ended up in somebody's, you know, they bought a boat instead of invested it. I mean, it's all sorts of things that happen there. And sometimes folks have to resort to lawsuits to try to get their money. Let's dig into that. Um, how how might EB five investors retrieve their investments or uh, recoup them when they're you know facing project problems with a, a project? I mean, what's what sort of case are you filing in Fed court? There's a spectrum here. So sometimes people aren't getting their money back because there's there's a dispute as to how long they're supposed to wait until they get their money back. The money's there, but you know there's some dispute over. This was supposed to take through five years and I'm getting my money back. Um, and, you know, the project may be saying, no, it's eight years. And then there are those for which the the money is just simply, they're saying it's either you're getting ghosted or you're being told that the money's is, is not there. Um, for the ones where we're closer to the spectrum that it's a disagreement over when you're getting your money back, those those get staged out a little differently. So first, you may do a demand. Then you may do something called a, a books and records demand. So this is something that we picked up from our days of securities litigation. You're able to have a company provide you with um, uh, their financial information. And depending on the state, if you think that there's some evidence that there's mismanagement, you could ask for documents around that, sensitive documents. A lot of times, these are not things that companies are eager to give to you. Um, so sometimes you'll be able to have a much better negotiating position if you if the company knows that they're going to have to give you these potentially embarrassing documents. If you're dealing with a fraud, now what we're looking at is, is there an arbitration clause or an enforceable arbitration clause? And if there is an arbitration clause, does it have some sort of loser pays provision in it? So we're basically trying to size up, can we go to court or do we have to go to arbitration? And if we go to, if we have to go to arbitration, what's the potential risk for the client? You know, do, do they have to potentially pay the other side's attorney's fees lose? And we're, we're taking it from there. We're, we're looking at what their options are. Collectability is frequently an issue. So, you know, again, the further you move down that fraud spectrum, the more likely it is you're dealing with an entity that's not exactly solid um, or or around for a very long time. So you have to look and see, uh, is there an entity to actually collect against? And a lot of times if we're coming up with problems with this, particularly if we're coming up with problems, if let's say that there's an arbitration clause, it's enforceable, it's got a loser pays provision, all that stuff that makes going after them that way very risky. That's when we probably are going to look more closely at the SEC whistleblower program uh, as something, because regardless of what's in 
uh, an agreement, uh, and the LLC agreement or LLP agreement, you can't foreclose somebody from going to the SEC and file, filing a tip. And you're not going to get your money back directly by filing an SEC tip. However, if the SEC takes your information, says, yeah, it looks like there's a fraud here, we're going to have an enforcement action. If they do, in fact, go through with that, then you're entitled to a percentage of what the SEC recovers. And, you know, typically it's, I think it's between 15 and 25%. Uh, I may, I may have missed it. I think it's between 10 and 25. Usually it comes in around 20. But that number can dwarf um, the amount of money you invested anyway, if it's, if it's a large project. So those can be very worthwhile. And also, by large, you could do, if you have an attorney, you could do those tips anonymously. So you don't have to necessarily be overly concerned about blowback or rough, ruffling feathers or something. Uh, well, my sense is uh, that these EB-5 investor visa case order gets a lot deeper than the other types of uh, cases that we were filing. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, this might be an area where you would want to write another book uh, specifically on these types of cases, because I can imagine uh, that there are various types of complaints uh, that you would be filing uh, and probably much more in the way of discovery uh, probably much more in the way of motion practice. And have you seen these cases go to a full-blown trial? Or I can't recall off the top of my head a trial with one, but the level of complexity of these is far greater than the other areas of immigration litigation. And also, this may be counterintuitive to a lot of people in my experience, and I think a lot of people's experience, much harder to litigate against well-financed um, well private parties than it is to litigate against the government. Litigating against the government, especially in immigration, it's kind of, you know, one, one thing that people are always worried about is retaliation from the government that if you sue them in a mandamus case, for instance, they're just going to spitefully deny your case and they're going to be upset that you sued them. It's really, they don't really take it that personally. It's it's not something, it's just business as usual. It's bloodless. It's just, you know, it's it's just a, a dispute that they have to resolve and, and that's it. It's not blood sport. Um, you get into private litigation and you start suing real estate developers you start suing, let's say, less than scrupulous immigration lawyers, um, banks, people like this. That that gets a lot nastier. Yeah, that's an in-your-face affair for sure. Yeah, so that, it just has a very different vibe um, to it. It's a lot more complex, and they're going to throw a lot more junk in your direction in those types of cases than you are in the immigration litigation cases. The Probably the biggest benefit for the EB-5 stuff is if you can do the case as a class action, the the resources that you could bring to bear on those cases from the plaintiff's side are just so much greater than you can in an immigration litigation because let's say that I do this case and I partner with another firm. I have to file the case in California and I'm partnering with California Council who's also has a lot of class action experience. If we know that there's a sizable contingency to chase, the amount of time that we're comfortable putting into the case is pretty high. And also the amount of cash that we're comfortable investing into the case is pretty high. 
if we think that the risk reward works out and there's a potential payoff in the end. So, you know, we, we can go at those cases with pretty deep resources, which is, it's, it's just a completely different, um, a completely different approach and, and, you know, favorable for the, for the investors. Perhaps uh, we can have you back another time to talk about a couple of specific scenarios that uh, you know you've seen with some of these EB five cases and and walk us through uh, you know uh, the anatomy of a case like that because it does sound as I said like the water gets a lot deeper it's much more complex um, we'd probably need um, you know some time for you to really uh, you know explain that the roadmap of the case start to finish and how to how to prevail on that I, I did have a piece of advice. Related to it for for other attorneys, for me the 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 most rewarding things that I've done as a as a legal professional is things where there's been these intersections of um, expertise that I've developed over time. So for me, the EB five stuff is pretty rewarding because I get to bring to bear what I've learned in immigration, what I've learned in securities litigation, and just general federal court litigation. And at that intersection. I, I feel like I have something like really unique and kind of special to bring to that uh, to that space. And I, I just think for, for other attorneys over time, if you could develop these areas where you have these kind of unique intersections, you know, whatever it may be for that person, it's just such a uh, such a bonus and such a such a selling point for their career. I think it's something really worth pursuing because that's where you really get, start to get unique capabilities. There's a lot of people, like for me, there's a lot of people that do securities class actions, a lot of immigration lawyers, there's a lot of federal litigators, but there's not many people that are in at the intersection of all three. Um, and I didn't do that intentionally. It's just how my interest kind of took me over time. But I think that's something good, especially for an area like immigration, because I think immigration really lends itself very well to that um, in a petition-based practice. But there's so many different areas of intersection that people could carve out these little niches that they're really just a category of one in. Yeah, Joseph, you're, you're making an important point, and it's one that we we, we make often, um, which is both from a, a standpoint of developing a passion and using your capabilities to the utmost to develop a specific niche or niche, um, and also from a branding perspective, it's also important. So it's both important, and you should come to it organically, right, if possible. Um, and uh, from a branding perspective, distinguishing yourself from your competition. There are a lot of immigration attorneys out there, a lot of attorneys out there. You know, uh, what is it that's unique about you? You want to be known as, you know, the EB-5 investor visa litigation guy rather than simply Joe Gentile immigration lawyer or, you know, something like that. So it's very important and it's, it's you know, definitely always worth restating that. But I would, uh, you know, perhaps uh, like to at some point have you back and really go more deeply just into the EB-5 cases because it's it's very interesting. It's an area where not there's not a lot of attorneys who are specifically uh, specializing in that. It's a complex area. And, you know, from the looks of it, there's no let up in demand for EB-5 uh, visas. We've got, you know, um, investors from around the world continuing to want to come to the United States. Um, so it's it seems like an, a niche which is going to stay good for a while. So if you're you're willing, we'd love to have you back. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, well, we're at the the end of the hour again. Uh, we want to thank uh, Attorney Joe Gentili from Serafin Gentili uh, for talking about federal court litigation and immigration law. 
And um, please uh, join us again for our next episode of Immigration Uncovered.